I'd like to ask you what you know about the women who took part in the 1916 Rising. Well, I only know really more to do with my own paternal grandmother. Um, and I was told the story by my father, um, 16 years of age came up from Galway with her firstborn to meet with her husband who worked on the railways and they moved into a basement flat tenement in Dominic Street so she raised 14 children in the inner city, saw the rising, was around at that time um, a very young woman and they lived in poverty so um, all the stories that I heard were you know, she travelled up by train with just her faith in her husband and a job to, and hopefully a roof. But there is a funny story, which was when he picked her up at the train station in Dublin and brought her down on a, would you believe, a pony and cart down to Dominic Street, Lower Dominic Street, to the tenement. She thought she had the whole big Georgian house to herself coming from <laughs> the west of Ireland. She thought he'd, you know, he'd struck gold. So that was really where it all began. But I know my Uncle Paddy, their firstborn, um, he would collect shells. He would go out, he wasn't supposed to, of course, and uh, he would go out during, um, actually after, way after 1916, it was in the uh, the times of the Troubles, you know, and um, he would collect the shells from the blackened towns and bring them home. Um, that was the first born. He was only a child you now, and he would do those things. So, um, But yeah, she was a very courageous lady, small, from photographs I saw, a small woman, and um, but full of character and... Um, they all looked out for each other. That was what I was told. Everyone looked out for everyone else. It was a community spirit, no matter what part of the country it came from. And um, even when the the troubles over the treaty came, she obviously was on the, you know, the treaty side. Um, but there was uh, there was poverty and there was struggle. And I think she she kind of passed that on to me. I know. My, I always felt those stories are very important to hear, even though I never got to meet her. The other women I know from around 1916, I'm looking at them at the moment, are the um, Cecilia, and uh, she looked at, she was an artist, and they would carry their, this is what I've been reading recently, they would carry notes to and from all the different spots and in their baskets, looking very uh, harmless in their uh, their fashionable garb of the day. So that's personally what I'm looking at because I'm an artist myself and I'm really interested in that idea of what would we do, the women today, if we were to cross time from 2016 to 1916 and reverse roles, what would we be doing? What would I be doing? How would I stand up and say something? Um, in 1916 and if we were to reverse roles and time travel how would the women of 1916 see how would they view what we, we do today in sight of an election about to take place and so on like that and trying to commemorate and trying to remember while try to, trying to also be contemporary and move forward so they're the questions I'm hoping to find some answers to by listening to the experts this evening Okay, good evening and welcome to the first of our three-part series on women in 1916. I'm Debbie Hutchinson and I'm your host for this evening. And this evening we will be looking at women in 1916, the key women in 1916, and also looking at the role of Ireland in relation to the UK economy and the Irish Women's Workers Union. So the two speakers that we have tonight are Dr. Conor McCabe and Neve Murray. Dr. Conor McCabe will be speaking first, and Dr. Conor McCabe is from the UCD School of Social Justice. He's the author of Sins of Our Father, which is a book that looks at the Irish economy from the, through the 20th century right up to the recent banking crisis. And Dr. McCabe is also a regular contributor to the Irish Left Review. Neve Murray is a teacher, and she's the author of Countess Markovich and the Women of the Revolution, a book which is due for publication soon. She's awaiting a date for that herself. She is also one of the founders of the Countess Markovich School, which was established as a regular forum for the discussion and advancement of equality for women. So we're going to start and um, I hand you over to uh, Dr. Conor McCabe. Okay, so thanks very much. Um, but my talk is more kind of scene setting um, for this period and and Neve will deal more with the people, the, the, the actual, the actual like individuals who um, are involved. Um, and I'll be looking at 
the, the role of women in work and the economy at that time. Um, the, 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 the overall the conclusion of this talk is that whereas kind of nationalist men had really one cause to, to fight for, women were fighting on just so many fronts. Um, they were fighting for the right to vote. Uh, they, were fighting f uh, they, they were fighting for the, the right to have their work seen as work um, and also then fighting for like low pay and also fighting in the trade union movement to be taken as equals, as equals in terms of, of workers. So even with all the stuff around 1916 and the rising, in, in reality, the, 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 the men had a much easier job than the women because they were coming from a much more different kind of level. In the early kind of 1800s, uh, women whose work, uh, I think, consisted there largely of caring for their families, were considered productive workers. Um, but by kind of 1900, um, they had been uh, downgraded in the census to the kind of category of dependents, um, a category that included infants, uh, young children, the uh, sick and the um, elderly. So from the very outset, um, economics was kind of preoccupied with this distinction with, with, with what they called productive and unproductive labour. Um, like whereas in the, in the 1800s, a women's work at home was seen as being productive, um, slowly over that century, in the writings of like Adam Smith and, and by others, um, they argued that the services at home and services of a domestic nature were unproductive because they did not contribute to the um, accumulation of like, physical wealth. Um, domestic servants, if, if for example, merely enhanced their employer's standard of, of, of living. Um, by the end of the 19th century, most economists, had all men, of course, um, had come to agree that all paid services uh, should be seen as, uh, as productive, and many advocated the, the term unproductive uh, to be dropped, but what they all did agree on is that um, any non-market services that lay outside the realm of economics did not contribute to economic growth, and that was seen as, as women's work at home. That's still the case. Um, there's a great ad or a great kind of cartoon that I saw once, and I use it uh, there sometimes in, in, in teaching. And it's a woman with like three or four kids all around her, and she's washing all, 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 all the dishes, and she's listening to the radio, and it's the prime minister is on the, the, the radio, and he's saying that women should return to work. So I mean, this 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 still goes on. This is 100 years later, and even in kind of GDP, which we hear so much about, uh, a women's work in caring, in like child rearing, um, in care for older members of the extended family, that's not seen as being productive even today. Still, so this is a fight that it, that is still kind of going on. Now, in 1911, in the census for Ireland, in in 1911, they didn't make this distinction of paid and, and unpaid stroke, unproductive kind of labour. Um, there was around 1.8 million uh, women who were seen as, as working, and then there was over 2.5 who were, who were put into the non-productive class. And this means women working, um, in, they're mainly at, at home. In terms of like work itself, um, women worked mainly in four main areas. Uh, there was kind of domestic servants, uh, textiles, education and in kind of and in by tobacco as well um, in terms of of the of the professional classes there was around kind of seven percent of the professional classes were women and that's mainly teaching that's mainly in terms of like education um, the uh, around kind of nine percent of women were working as like as kind of domestic uh, servants uh, but 43 percent worked in terms of like agriculture and that's that's at home, that's in the kind of farms themselves. And 33% worked in industry as well. Now, there's another side 
of this and the unpaid kind of domestic and agricultural work, women who are working on the farm, on the family farm, um, and not getting paid for it, they're seen as being unproductive, and that included 2.5 million uh, women. The other side of it, and this is part of our own history, um, something that doesn't really kind of translate well to other kind of countries, but it's, but it's emigration. Um, so in terms of work, there's always that thing kind of hanging over uh, women and men in, 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 in Ireland. At the time, that work, it would mean leaving Ireland at some stage. Uh, the, the figures are, are, are quite shocking. Um, from, from, April, from 1851 to, to, to 4.19 million people left Ireland uh, there permanently. That's almost the entire population of, of Ireland currently today. It's like 4.5 at the moment. Um, to over 2 million women. So that was 2 million women who, who had left. Now, in the 10 years prior to 1911, 174,000 women had, um, had left Ireland for work um, overseas. Um, overwhelmingly, at that time, to the US and to Canada, with a small proportion to the UK. The UK, that becomes more of a player in terms of work for women after the 1940s, really. That's when the, when the NHS has been set up and there's more kind of work there as well. So there's around, uh, there's around 173,000 women who have left and they're, and, and, and they're also part of the, of, of the work itself. Now, given where women kind of worked, they were very hard then to unionise because the areas were often solitary or seasonal employment. But there were uh, cases of, of trying to get women to, uh, to organise at that time. Um, in 1909, there was a report done into home working in Ireland. So this area that was seen as being unproductive. And this is some of the kind of evidence that was given in that report. It's from, um, it's from uh, Margaret Erwin, who was a Scottish labourer organiser, and she went around Ireland interviewing women and asking them about their work, what they actually worked at. So she has one here and she says witness, and that's the person who, um, you know, who she's interviewing, says that the witness said she and her sister were both very quick workers and, and they're doing piecework at home. So they're making kind of clothes or whatever and it's, and it's working from at home. One of them used to work, earn about 25 shillings in the in the fortnight, rates have come down kind of very much, but she could not exactly estimate the kind of decrease. And work is so scarce now that they can only get about two dozen shirts to do in the week. The father and mother are alive, and they all live on a small croft of six acres, where they broken potatoes and a little corn. They have pigs and fowls, also two cows, uh, the milk of which they keep for their own consumption. There were 13 in the family, including the, the, the father and mother, but four had gone to America, to, to Dublin, and only five were left, uh, three of whom were girls. Uh, one of them worked steadily at the shirts. When these are to be had, a witness said that she was a highly intelligent girl and qualified for much better work than that which at present occupies her. In terms of the stats, the only bit of that work that would show up in, in, in the stats is those, is, those two, is those two dozen shirts. Everything else is seen as being unproductive. So these are the battles that uh, the women had at that time, even, even get their own work seen as being kind of uh, valid. Thanks to uh, Dr. Conor McCabe. Okay. So um, what's lovely tonight is that we have some live music as well. And I'm delighted to introduce to you Fergus Russell. And um, I think your first song, Fergus, is Down by the, yeah, down by the Glenside. Down by the Glenside. So ladies and gents. Yeah, this song was written by Paddock Carney, who was involved in 1916 Rising. He was in the GPO. And uh, he wrote quite a number of songs about, uh, about before the Rising, about the, the fight for freedom in Ireland. And he wrote this one at the sort of an allegorical song where the old woman is, it represents Ireland. And... Oh, I'll give it a try. <clears throat> As down by the glenside I met an old woman A plucking young nettles She ne'er saw me coming 
I listened a while to the song she was singing. Glorio, glorio to the Bolfinian man. Tis fifty long years since I saw the moon beaming on strong manly forms and their eyes with hope gleaming. I see them again through all my sad dreaming. Glorio, glorio to the Bolfinian man. Some died by the glenside, some died midst a stranger, and wise men have told us that their cause was a failure. But they love dear old Ireland, and they never fear danger. Glorio, glorio to the Bolfinian man. I passed on my way, God be praised that I met her. Be lifelong or short, I will never forget her. We may have brave men, but we'll never have better. Glorio, glorio to the Bolfinian men. Thank you, Fergus. Uh, that was brilliant and not easy to do, just on your own there, and it sounded fantastic. So we'll have more from Fergus later on in the evening. So now we go to our second speaker. And as I said, Neve Murray has recently written a book, Countess Markovich and the Women of the Revolution. And I'm sure when we all think of the rising and think of strong Irish women, um, we, we immediately think of Countess Markovich. I mean, that who comes to mind. I mean, there's uh, numerous schools of thought where some people say, you know, she's not the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then other people would say, you know, that she's, she's done, done a lot for women and women's rights. Uh, the interesting thing about Countess Markovich is she, when she was elected um, to, to cabinet, in what year was that? It was like 1918. The next female to be elected to cabinet was Mary Gogan Quinn in 1979. So that goes to show you, uh, and we can discuss those issues as well. So um, Neve is going to tell us a little bit about Countess Markovich, but also maybe open it out into some other women in the Rising who maybe, um, I, I think we're getting to know them now over the last year, people like Rosie Hackett and Kathleen Lynn, but maybe, well, I wasn't as aware of them as I would have been of Countess Markovich. So, so Neve Murray, thank sure. you. Um, I suppose just even to start on that note, you know, why why did why do we not know enough about women? And there's a quote which I actually love. Um, she's a historian called Margaret McCurtain, who's now in her 80s, and she's one of the most eminent kind of female historians in Ireland. But she said, writing women into Irish history became a subversive activity for women historians in the 1970s. And I think that that kind of sums it up. And then at that time, because I went to college kind of the late 1990s, there was a book, it was Joe Lee, 19, Ireland, 1912 to 1985. He features in the documentary, the Brina McDermott one that's on RT tonight. He's now in New York University, but he said, he defended the absence of women in his book t on the grounds that to suggest women had undue influence would be to impose a modern politically correct contention on a situation where it did not exist. And this was taken from Dermot Farriger's book and he basically said that there's loads of documentary evidence and I suppose in my own research I was amazed at the amount of documentary evidence that the women left behind, Kathleen Lynn's diary, um, Markovic's prison letters, they wrote numerous articles for newspapers, so it is there, it's just that we haven't kind of given it enough attention I suppose. Um, it's a huge area, maybe just to start, 
I think if if we kind of start in maybe 1900, um, the woman who maybe you could say is one of the most radical women politically in Ireland was Maud Gone. Now she wasn't in Ireland when the rising happened. She was in kind of exile in France at the time. But she set up an organisation called Ingi Nina Heron, which is Daughters of Ireland, and it was a radical nationalist organisation. And I suppose that's where a lot of the women, like Helena Maloney, like Markovics, that's where they first became very politicised. So I think it's a really important organisation to note. Um, Helena Maloney joined it in 1903 and she basically met Markovics around 1908 and brought her into Ingenia Naharan. And that was her first, I suppose, political um, voyage, shall we say. And what happened was Ingenia Naharan, I suppose, started to um, disband in the kind of... No, around 1911, 1912, you know, things started to um, change a lot in Irish society. And what happened was two new organisations were set up. One was the Irish Citizen Army and one was Coming Amman. So basically the Inini members went into either of those two. And what is quite interesting is that the Inini members that went into Coming Amman, they were the most radical women who took part in the Rising. And most of them were in Marabone Lane in the garrison there. So I suppose you can go back to the legacy of Maud Gaughan and Ingeen and Heron is quite important. But just even before the rising, like, you know, and as Connor said, women were fighting for so many different things. But there were three key movements that they were involved in. There were the suffrage movement, they were fighting for the right to, to vote. There was the labour movement fighting for, you know, right to better pay and conditions, which was the Irish Women Workers Union. And then there was nationalism, the women who wanted a free Ireland. And in a way, it was fantastic that they were so active and they were so interested. But in another way, it was it was probably to their disadvantage because their energies were split into different movements and it probably caused a bit of tension. And there was a huge tension between the suffrage movement and the nationalist movement in particular because the nationalist women who would be the likes of Jenny Wise Power, you know, Agnes O'Farrelly, Mary McSwinney, they wanted an independent Ireland and they disagreed with Hannah Shee, Skeffington, Louis Bennett and the suffragists because they said, well, we're not going to fight for the right to vote for what they considered a foreign parliament. The British parliament was a foreign parliament, whereas the suffragists, Shee, Skeffington, Louis Bennett, they said, well, there's no point fighting for a free Ireland unless women are going to be given the right to vote. So there was this huge kind of tension, which, which in a way was a disadvantage, I suppose. And I suppose the interesting thing about Markovics is that she was really associated with all movements. There are some people who would have criticised her for that. And one particular person who really didn't like her was Sean O'Casey, the playwright. And he was in the Irish Citizen Army, which she was a member of. And he, I think it was the fact that she was aristocratic. She was from an upper class background. You know, he was suspicious of her. He came from a very working class background. But what happened was he, during one meeting of the Citizen Army, he proposed a motion that she be ejected from the Citizen Army because she was a member of Common Amman. And basically he lost the vote by one vote because Markovic voted for herself to stay in. So he kind of took a bit of a strop and he left, which was probably a good thing because then he put all of his energies into writing plays and left its own legacy. But I suppose that's kind of the context before the Rising, is that things were very split and there was so much going on. So then I suppose to come into the Rising, you know, the women who took part in the Rising were either in Common Amman or the Citizen Army. And there was a difference in the two organisations. Like Common Amman was set up in 1914. The first meeting was in Wynne's Hotel, which obviously is still there on Abbey Street today. And it's about 100 people at the first meeting in April 1914. They wanted an independent Ireland. They wanted... Irish freedom, but a lot of the women involved in Coming Man were related or married to the men in the Irish Volunteers. So I suppose they didn't want to maybe overstep the mark or be too radical. And there was a big discussion at their first meeting. Well, what's our role going to be? You know, how far can we go? And they decided that they would be supportive of the Irish Volunteers. So the early Coming Man organisation was much less radical than it would become after the rising. And I think that's kind of important. So they were what was called, they were in an auxiliary role. Now again, Hannah Shee Skeffington called them the handmaidens of the volunteers. Markovics was critical of them as well. You know, they felt that they were kind of, you know, I suppose under the orders of the volunteers. They didn't have enough autonomy. So a lot of the more stronger women were critical of coming them on. But I suppose the other women were quite lucky, like Markovics, because 
you know, I suppose the key person in all of this who really gave the women um, space was James Connolly. And he was the, the, I have a quote here, the Irish Women's Franchise League. They called him the soundest and most thoroughgoing feminist among all the Labour men. He thought women should be treated equally. And as a result, the women in the Citizen Army, you know, some of them were armed, two of them were given rank position. Markovic was a lieutenant, Kathleen Lynn was a captain. Like they were given much more responsibility and they were armed. He did treat them equally. So in probably 300 women took part in the Rising. Roughly two thirds were in Common Naman and one third in the Citizen Army. But the Citizen Army women were able to do more. They were able to play a much larger role and that was facilitated really by Conley. So I suppose when the Rising um, um, you know, occurred, you know, there was quite a difference in the, the I suppose, the roles that they played. So the Cumann women, primarily, they cooked food, they delivered ammunition, they delivered messenger, messages, to, you know, between the garrisons. I suppose that's quite important to remember that they didn't have any other form of communication. So the role that the women played was key in terms of communicating between Jacobs and the GPO or between Stevens Green and City Hall. Um, there's a historian in Oxford University called Senia Peseta, she's Australian, and I just have a quote, I think, you know, she was talking about the whole thing about, well, what, what did women really play a big role, you know, if they were cooking food? Because sometimes people dismiss it, and she said, making tea and sandwiches was hardly a revolutionary act, but making tea and sandwiches in the midst of armed revolt in a garrison was by default a highly subversive and radical act. And I think that quote sums it up because it was a dangerous thing to do. They were under fire and the women who carried messages and ammunitions in their long skirts, you know, they were putting their lives at risk in that sense. Um, I suppose to go back to the Citizen Army women, a number of them were armed. What was quite interesting was um, the day that the rising um, happened, Easter Monday, uh, Kathleen Lynn and Helena Maloney were both uh, assigned to City Hall with Sean Connolly. And Sean Connolly and Helena Maloney were both actors in the Abbey Theatre, so they were quite good friends as well. And I'm not exactly sure, and I think historians differ about were they planning on taking over Dublin Castle or not, but there was a kind of a shootout at Dublin Castle, and Sean Connolly, who was Commandant of City Hall, was killed. He was the first of the Irish rebels to be killed in the Rising. So Dr Kathleen Lynn had to assume control of the garrison. And she has left a witness statement in the, the Bureau of, of Military History, which you can see online. And, you know, she said that when that garrison fell after 24 hours, because it was so close to the castle and they were outnumbered, but she said that when the British soldiers came in, they weren't really sure what to do because she was a woman and they weren't sure whether they could even accept a surrender notice from a woman. It was this protocol. And I think they had to check with their superiors if they could even do that. But it was Kathleen Lynn and Helena Maloney that you know, I suppose, ran that garrison. And again, it's something that maybe people don't realise, and I didn't certainly realise until I kind of started to research into it. So I suppose, you know, the women did play, um, you know, quite a big role I in the rising. Um, I think that if you look at someone like Helena Maloney, who I think is my own personal favourite of all of the women who took part in the rising, and yet very little is known about her. You know, she was an actress in the Abbey Theatre, she was um, involved in the labour struggle and she went on to, I suppose, be deputy commandant of City Hall Garrison. And, you know, she had a very, very kind of, I suppose, interesting career and was a very interesting woman. Um, just in terms of, I suppose, the actual rising itself, the majority of, of the Citizen Army women were up in St Stephen's Green. So Markovic was second in command. Um, to Michael Mallon. You, Rosie Hackett was there. Um, Rosie Hackett was there. Madeline French Mullen was there. She was um, in charge of the first aid st station. Nellie Gifford fought there and she was in charge of the food. She's obviously the sister of Grace Gifford, Muriel Gifford. So there was a huge involvement, you know, of women, you know, in 1916 and in the Rising. And I suppose maybe just to fast forward, everybody is aware of the actual rising itself. But just maybe to fast forward to the actual um, surrender, I think maybe, again, I didn't realise myself, but everybody knows Elizabeth O'Farrell walked up Moore Street with the white flag of surrender. But maybe a lot of people don't realise that General Lowe then asked her, 
would she carry the surrender notice around all of the garrisons? And that took her two days. So she had an armed escort, a British Army soldier, who walked her to every single garrison where she handed the surrender note. And what's quite interesting is she wrote a, a piece about it, you know, in the years afterwards, that when she went to Boland's Mills, she said that that was her most dangerous uh, mission because she had to cross Westland Row and she was under fire. And she said, and when I got to Boland's Mills, I couldn't find De Valera. So she, he had moved to the Grand Canal dispensary at the back of the building, so she had a bit of trouble to find him. And when she did find him, the surrender notice had been signed by Pierce and Connolly, but de Valera was in the Irish Volunteers, and Owen McNeil didn't take part. So the deputy commandant there was Thomas McDonough in Jacobs, and de Valera said to her that he wouldn't accept the surrender. So basically, unless McDonough had signed it. So Elizabeth O'Farrell had written, so after my trouble in finding him, I had to go off again, which I thought was quite, you know, a good description of it. Now, De Valera did surrender in the interim, but she had to go off after all of her hard work and go back to find McDonough. Sure. I don't know if that's a a good place to to end. Okay, so Fergus' second song, I believe, is The Foggy Jew, is it? The Foggy Jew is probably the most known of the songs from 1916. It was written very soon afterwards by a parish priest called Canon O'Neill. And um, it's probably the one that describes uh, best the description of what happened <coughs> in the Rising. <coughs> it's not all uh, perfectly historical, but it gives the main ideas behind it. <coughs> As down the glen one Easter morn to a city fair road I. There armoured lions of marching men in squadrons passed me by. No pipe did hum, no battle drum did sound its loud tattoo. But the angelus bell, or the liffy swell, rang out in the foggy dew. Right proudly high over Dublin town, they hung out their flag of war. It was better to die neat an Irish sky than at Suvla or Sudalbar. And from the plains of Royal Meath, strong men came hurrying through, while Britannia's sons, with their long-range guns, sailed in through the foggy dew. Thank you. Thanks again, Fergus. That was great. Great to hear it live as well. I'm sure we um, we all know these songs as well, but it's nice to actually know the background to them, isn't it? Like you hear them all the time at sessions, but it's great to hear it. And Fergus has such a, I don't know, evocative voice, doesn't he? Like a great voice. Like. We'll give him a rest now <laughs> until the end. Okay, so I just wanted to open some questions. What, what I was saying there beforehand was just in relation to organisations like Come and Amon, when you you look at the people involved and you read about the people involved, they would seem to me to be from a predominantly um, middle-class background. And I'm wondering, what were the working-class involvement in those organisations? Because I suppose a a lot of, like, working-class women were, you know, a lot of them were living in the tenements and they were, you know, looking after seven or eight children and, you know, it took an hour to, to light a fire and a whole day to wash your clothes. So you'd wonder, did they actually have the time to become involved in that? So, Or is that just a misconception on my part? Was there a lot of involvement from working class women? Or? Yeah, I think there is a difference in the two organisations, yeah. definitely. Coming Amon was more middle class in its kind of composition. And again, a lot of the women were they were related, they were the sisters or the wives of a lot of the men in the volunteers. And the volunteers was a more middle-class organisation as well. And in, in the same way, the Citizen Army was more Dublin-based an organisation. It didn't really expand outside Dublin. And the women in the Citizen Army were predominantly working-class women. And except, I suppose, Markovics and Kathleen Lynn, which you might just come back to. But the one thing I should have mentioned... The, the big turning point, I suppose, before 1916 was the lockout, the 1913 lockout, because that's when 
all of the different kind of women's groups came together and during the lockout the suffrage women wore their votes for women badge the irish women workers union wore their trade union badges and that's the first time some of those women really kind of crossed paths as such and it kind of forged connections between them so that they got to know each other a lot better before kind of the rising but there's definitely a, a class issue but i think apart from the class issue there probably is a religious issue in the sense that the higher profile women involved in the in the rising and in ireland's revolutionary struggle in general tended to be Protestant or atheist, which, you know, I suppose that's a hangover of the Catholic Church at that time. Women were quite, I suppose they were second class citizens. They were at home. They were minding children as well. So they were a lot less free to be out and about, certainly. I mean, there's another aspect as well, which maybe it's only more modern day. It's been kind of discussed, but I suppose sexuality is another factor. Some of the women were lesbian women, which you know, maybe wouldn't have been written about at the time. But again, it meant that they had more time on their hands, that they didn't have children, you know, that they could get involved in the struggle. So I think there's a few different factors mm. going on there, but there definitely was different. The fact that, I mean, I suppose we have a perception in the proclamation, there's a piece about equality yeah. for all. And uh, maybe we have a perception that the leaders were more radical than they actually were because they were quite conservative. I mean, Porrick Pierce, I would imagine, wouldn't have, um, you know, recognised that there were gay women, mm. you know, involved mm. and wouldn't have wanted mm. to highlight that. And um, did you want to say something there? I, I, wasn't, I, I was going to come in later. Oh, yeah, I was going to come in, in now. Yeah. I tell you what I was going to come in about was in relation to the Irish Citizen Army. Um, Kathleen Lynn had members trained in first aid and um, this enabled kind of hospitals, you know, um, field hospitals to be set up, say, in the... Um, Father Matthew Hall and in other areas, you know, uh, um, you mentioned about um, um, Kathleen Lynn's partner, you know, setting up French, uh, mm. uh, Macmullen setting up the Stevens Green. But they were also um, looking after the injured, you know, both soldiers. And there were a lot of nurses involved and there were, you know, through the um, John's Ambulance, there were different hospitals set up. And um, there's a lot talked about the um, staff in Sir Patrick Dunn's hospital and how brave the nurses were going out into Mount Street between different waves of the soldiers being killed, going out to bring yeah. in the soldiers and bring them to Patrick Dunn's hospital. And do you feel and you knew of, those stories yourself? That one of yeah. the first um, people to be killed, you know, up in South Dublin Union was actually a nurse called Margaret Kyo. Okay. She came there was a shooting downstairs and I think it was in hospital too and she was very concerned about the patients and she went running down the stairs and she was caught in the crossfire and her name was Mark Kyo. Right, you know? yeah, yeah. So um, there was that, I just happened to be very interested yeah. in the medical uh, aspect of it, you know. And I, I suppose that that's interesting what you're saying that actually being on the battlefront equipped with them with the skills and oftentimes that can happen in uh, times of combat. So for instance, in the First and Second World War, women had to learn uh, factory skills because the bed went off so but uh, that that was often the thing though is that you know when the men returned all of those skills just really went nowhere for women because they had to to go back to to minding the kids and to going back to, to do and in the case of Ireland in the 60s they had the marriage bar then which meant that they couldn't work at all as well which kind of women's progression um, I was just going to bring out as well um, you know some of the women working in the munitions factory there was a munitions factory down near the docks and um, you know the sufferance is the the separation allowance you know at least that led to some um, increase in the stand you know in the standard of living and the nutrition for the women mm -hmm. in Dublin yeah, around yeah. that time and, and, and the separation allowance was given to wives yeah, of, of soldiers. men at the yeah. front and again that was a kind of an interesting aspect to the rising because reading through documents of the rising I came across a, a, um, a description from a soldier who was attacked by they were called separation mm. women who was actually attacked by them and had to get reinforcements so angry were they at the fact that this rising was taking place because it threatened their mm. which is really economic existence having an and impact there's a description of um some of the volunteers coming from um jacob's factory going in to take over a building in fumbly lane and the separation women you know turning on them mm. and to try and get control there was a, a, a there was a shooting for, there was a shot fired from Jacobs and unfortunately a child was killed. Right. Okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, are there any questions from the? We will open it out to questions from the audience. Then it's not a question, but just to say that Dr. Kathleen Lynn, when she opened St. Dalton's Hospital, um, she just employed all female staff, consultants, and everything else, right. which was interesting. And that hospital was so important because Dublin had one of the highest infant mortality rates in Europe because of the slums as well. Um, she had uh, what's the word huge difficulty because this was in the 30s and she basically wanted to extend, Saint, sorry she, it was opened in 1919 but she wanted to extend it and they had plans, they had an architect design plans on the canal to have a proper children's hospital to merge it with Harcourt Street but De Valera and his old friend John Charles McQuaid <laughs> basically put the kibosh on it and mm. it took 20 years before a children's hospital was built which became Crumlin Hospital so yeah it's amazing how at different intervals in history mm. it, those same two men can reappear and <laughs> oh yeah I just wanted to say that I think it's probably difficult for us to understand now how dependent the women working class women then were on their week's wages they lived from barely from yeah. week to week and when I got married first, uh, a long time ago, 59 years ago, my mother-in-law worked in Jacobs. She was, wow. By the time I met her, she was the girl's timekeeper. But in the census of 1911, she had put herself down as uh, age 17 and a biscuit packer. So she was 20 during the rising and the only support of her home. Her mother and father had separated, which was very unusual, mm -hmm. and her mother was in ill health. And she was the only breadwinner. And when I met her, I was delighted to find somebody who had lived through the rising and who worked in Jacobs, because my parents weren't in jobs. Yeah. <laughs> and she wouldn't, all she ever said about the rising and the lockout were very, um, uh, she saw a very negative side of them. Yeah. She, she remembered how she was deprived of her wages and how serious it was not to have money for food or rent. Yeah. And... <laughs> And as for coming a man, <laughs> as soon as I had children, the public health nurse began to call. And that was my first inkling of what she thought. She said to me, I don't mind them. They're all old coming a man, girls. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, then she would, she would not have liked my grandmother because oh. my grandmother was a member of coming a man and she was in Jacobs. <laughs> so I apologise. <laughs> and my grandmother lived in Dorset Street okay. so they weren't all upper middle class or middle class people yeah. she went back to um, a tenement and um, with her sister and her future husband and they just kept the house open for any of the rebels that were passing but certainly she wouldn't she would have been quite a poor person at yeah. the time but a patriot <laughs> yeah thank you um, sorry aside from Connolly um, were many of the other senior male figures involved in the Rising considered to be feminists? And if not, did kind of women's senior role in the Irish Citizen Army cause a lot of internal tension? I suppose, you know, the, I mean, just when you mentioned the proclamation and, and Connolly and, you're, you know, you had said to, um, about Pierce. And I think the sections on equality, no one exactly knows who wrote what bit, but people would generally attribute it to Connolly. But I suppose the other man who would have been quite um, uh, an egalitarian in terms of uh, women would be Thomas McDonough. So he was considered quite progressive. He was an English teacher um, and he was a member of the volunteers. He would have been the commandant. I mean, Malin was also quite supportive of women and he obviously, he, he did appoint um, Mark Vick's second in command when she got to the green. Um, they were they were short on people because of the whole countermandering mm. order. They had less numbers, and he basically said, "You're second in command. You're a sniper." So it was he did appoint her, and Co both Markovics and Malin were appointed as Connolly's ghosts. And this was a, a thing that they did that if the leader was killed, this other person would have all the information and the secrets. So Kathleen Clark was Thomas Clark's ghost and that she didn't take part in the Rising deliberately because she was given the IRB money and the secrets. So I suppose Malin was, McDonough was, Conley, I couldn't say, I've heard, I don't know about Pierce. Unfortunately, I have to wrap things up because uh, we're out of time. I'm sure you have loads of questions and loads of uh, stories. We're going to go to, to Fergus for a final song. Uh, OK, so uh, thanks again to Neve and to Connor. Thanks to everybody who came along tonight. Uh, this series is actually a partnership with the, between Near FM and the Law and Mediation uh, service and Coolock Library. So I'd like to thank Jane O'Sullivan from Law and Mediation, who's done loads of work in organising. She's there hiding at the back. And also Paul Daly from Coolock Library, who's still working on the desk over there. 
and uh, they, they've been great in terms of getting this all together for us as well. And also, finally, to thank the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland for their support. They're the people that gave us, give us the money. So uh, thanks again to everybody for coming along, and we're going to finish up with another song from Fergus Russell. Thank you. This song is was written actually in 1965. It was written by a guy named a working class man from the Liberties called uh, Liam Weldon, and it's just it, it's a, a story. It's a song that was written not just to celebrate the rising, but the, it, it it's about the shattering of the dream or the ideal that the people who fought in the rising had. And it, after after it was written. It became. It was misinterpreted uh, as a song against the provisionals. It was written long before the provisionals became an entity, and it. What the song is about is about the betrayal of the ideals of the people who fought, because after they had a, after the, the independence, we had a counter revolution where control was given to the church mainly of the, the hospitals, of the medical system, of the schools, etc. And they worked against the interests of the normal people. And part of the song refers, in, in a way, to the, 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 the struggles of Dr. Noel Brown to bring in proper medical treatment without the interference of the church, particularly uh, the Mother and Child Act that uh, was defeated by uh, Fianna Fáilers, basically, in, 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 the, in the parliament in the 50s. <coughs> All those that died for liberty have heard the eagle scream. The ones that died for liberty, they died but for a dream. Oh, rise, rise, rise. Dark horse on the wind For in no nation on the earth More broken dreams you will find The flames leapt high up to the sky And they seared a nation's soul in the ashes of our broken dreams, we've lost sight of our goal. Oh, rise, 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 dark horse on the wind, and help our hearts seek roshin, our broken dreams to find now charlatans wear dead men's shoes i unrattle dead men's bones ere the dust had settled on their tombs they sold the very stones Oh, rise, 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 dark horse on the wind, for in no nation on this earth more Pharisees you will find. In grief and hate, our motherland, her dragon teeth have sown. Now the warriors spring from the earth to kill and maim their own. Oh, rise, rise, rise. Dark horse on the wind, for the one-eyed baller still reigns king in our nation of the blind. Till 
first of all, did you enjoy the evening? And secondly, did you learn a lot? Or I won't say learn, but did you no, leave more with more knowledge than you came with? Absolutely more knowledge, and it was an amazingly successful. I'm so thrilled, like Neve here and another member of the audience. I'm delighted I, I made the effort to come this evening, and I'll certainly be attending all the other series of lectures. And um, the panel were fabulous. It was lovely meeting all the crew and the staff, and I absolutely adore the uh, singing because that that storytelling very much musical storytelling is part of our heritage and we need not forget that we must always include that in part of who we are it's made me realize that confirm um, that I have been considering going on to do further third level study and look at our history and um, women's studies perhaps at Trinity College I was looking for a particular topic and to do at an MA level and I'm now convinced that this is the path I want to follow because I'm an artist I want to follow this now so tonight has been very much a turning point for me uh, there's a lot of things I didn't know and um, the panel obviously are experts and I'm thrilled that I was able to take part and I hope that more of this you know, um, the Broadcasting Authority will finance more of this education for all of us, both male and female. Did you enjoy the event and did you learn anything from it? Um, I enjoyed the event thoroughly. The man that was singing was terrific and I learned so much more about the women and what actually was going on in ordinary life that it was amazing. I really enjoyed it. And yourself, did you enjoy the evening? I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, we've learned an awful lot in night there all about what happened with the women and all the different classes and the way the church took part in it and the way the different governments and different common man and the other you know and also the songs tonight oh, they were priceless tell me just as a matter of interest in relation to tonight did you find anything or did you think that anything you heard tonight might have changed some of the preconceptions that you might have had about 1916 and the women well yes I, I'll be honest with you I didn't know a lot about it I just knew bits and pieces but I didn't realise that they were so much second class citizens and they really had no say in anything um, I thought it was only kind of posh women that was involved in all this very educated people I didn't realise there were so many ordinary women were in, involved in it at all um, I just thought people that were educated knew what they were doing because Patrick Pierce and all that, they're all into education and I didn't realise that the ordinary working class woman was involved in it This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.